So we're in 2 Timothy, and we'll kind of finish this up tonight. And, you know, you get to the most, these are the last words of Paul. I mean, last words recorded, and, uh, you know, last written words that we have of him. In verse 9, he says uh, to Timothy, make every effort to come to me soon. Paul says, Timothy, make every effort to come to me soon. I really want you. Timothy was his closest friend. Now, there is, it's a bit odd, and, and I've always felt this when I come, especially to 2 Timothy, and, and, and really, I've, I, you know, I've, I don't see any of the scholars or any of the commentators deal with it much. On the one hand, he's giving advice to Timothy throughout 2 Timothy on how to deal with problems. And knowing that when he gets this letter, he's going to have the opportunity to deal with all that. But then he just says, but you need to instead come to me right now. To make every effort to come to me soon means when you get this, you come. He probably, Timothy probably received this in the spring, late spring. Um, or certainly that's when Paul wrote it. And back then... There were times you couldn't travel. So from, if Timothy's in Ephesus, Paul's in Rome, from November to about March, you can't travel. You can't sail for sure because of the, the, the cold, the, the winter, the storms and all that. So it's going to take two or three months for Timothy to get to Paul. So I mean, when Timothy gets this letter, he's got he's to get going. And so there is, there's a little bit, I, I find it's fascinating, there's a little bit of a disconnect. Timothy, you've got problems you've got to deal with. But you got to come to me soon. And we don't know this. Is Timothy going to deal with them quickly? Is he going to delegate? Is he going to go back to Ephesus? I mean, what is going to happen? But the truth of the matter is, when all is said and done, Paul wants Timothy to come to him, to be with him, to be close to him. Probably to also share with Timothy and to spend the last bit of time that Paul has teaching Timothy. <coughs> Excuse me. So he says, Timothy, come. And, uh, you know, we, we think of Paul as, you know, this just, just, I, you know, this kind of, I think it was a hard man at times. He's tough. He can be really difficult with opposi opposition. Um, you don't see Paul in his letters a lot of affection. You don't see him in his letters, you know, sharing much emotion at, at that point. And yet, here you have it. You, know, he's, you forget sometimes he really was human. You know, he's, Paul's almost to me sometimes, he's like this machine of a Christian. He, once he's saved, he's just out witnessing, starting churches, dealing with problems, battling guys. He's beaten. He's, you know, he's swift. He's in jail. He's just fighting. He's just tough and he's harsh and he's hard. Not in a bad sense, harsh and hard, but I mean, he's just able to go through all of that. And then he says, Timothy, you just need to come to me. And then he says this, for Demas, having loved the world, has deserted me. And gone to Thessalonica. Now he's going to mention several names. I did, most of the names here are, are mentioned other places in Paul's letter and Book of Acts. I thought about trying to tell you where they were, and then I said that's just too much trouble on my part. Just look it up on your own. But um, Demas was really close to Paul in Colossians. Demas is mentioned. Paul's in prison in Colossians, and Demas is there with him. And Demas is one of those like young believers, young kind of proteges of Paul. That uh, until you get to 2 Timothy, he appears to be one of the guys that Paul trusts. He's with Paul. Paul's mentoring him. And then he says, having really just loved the world, he deserted me. And, and probably the best way of looking at that is not that Demas is not a believer. He is. But sometimes, you know, when the stress and how difficult it is to be a Christian gets to you. I mean, it, you know, what Paul's dealing with, he's going to die. And, and, and Paul, and you're going to see in just a minute, I mean, Paul is in, in a harsh place, in a hard place, a tough place in his life. And, um, and it's not going to be easy being with Paul. 
And probably Demas has just gotten tired of it. He's gotten tired of all the battles. He's getting tired of the prison. And, you know, he loved the world. Some thinks it means, you know, he loved the money. He loved whatever. I think the best explanation I have is just from Paul's way of looking at it, Demas had a choice. Stand with Paul in Christ or go with the world. And he, he, for a period of his life, he went with the world. We don't know how long it lasted. We don't know, we, we don't know all, all the details of it. It will see in a minute another guy who at one time left Paul when times were great, when times were hard, has become his closest, one of his closest companions. But Demas left. And, and I think there are times that we see people do that. I mean, there, there are times that we see people who are followers of Christ, people I know are followers of Jesus. But the, the temptation, the lure of the world is just too much. And it can be. Listen, the world has a lot of cool things to offer. Money, security, pleasure. I mean, sometimes that temptation, that lure of the world can really be, really be great. I have friends who, you know, entered ministry about the same time I did. And, you know, they left ministry for whatever reason, and that's fine. And I, and I look at them, and, and a lot of them have become very successful from a worldly standpoint and financially successful. And, you know, they're still involved in church, and they still do things. But that's not their, that's not the world they're in. They've gone to the culture side of the world for a while. It's always that temptation there to do that. And we should probably understand that it's a great temptation. It's hard to battle. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Now, Demas is the only one that it looks like left for negative reasons. Crescens has gone to Galatia because probably Paul sent him. Titus to Dalmatia. I mean, Titus is one of Paul's closest companions. He's got a, the next letter is written to Titus. He says, only Luke is with me. Now, Probably what he means of all his inner group, only Luke is with him. Doesn't mean that nobody, because he's going to see in a minute, there are other people who are helping him. But Luke is the main guy who is with him. And Luke was one of Paul's closest, closest companions. And so he's there. And then get this. Now, I love, this, this is a hidden gem of, of just understatement. Take along Mark and bring him with you. For he is useful to me for service. In Acts, Paul and Barnabas are on their first missionary journey. Barnabas' cousin, John Mark, is with them. And he does the same thing Demas did. It got hard, and he left. On the second journey, when Paul and Barnabas are about to go, Barnabas wants to bring Mark. And Paul says, ain't going to happen. He ain't going to do that to me again. And he says no. And Barnabas and Paul split. That's like the first church split right there. It's not technically a church split. but So people who want to justify the biblical rationale for a church split, there you go, I guess. I don't know. I just made that part up, so you probably shouldn't go with that. There wasn't a lot of thought and effort put into that. But somewhere along the way, we don't know how. Paul and Mark reconcile. In fact, in, in Colossians, where Demas was there, so was Mark. By the time Paul's in, in Colossians in prison, um, by the time he's in, in prison in Rome, writing Colossians, he's not in Colossians, but when he writes Colossians from the first prison in Rome, you know, Mark is there. And he says he's useful to me in service. And the, the word for serving here that he uses when he says that, in verse 11, 
Um, it's the same word, diakonon, which means deacon. Mark is almost, and it's also used for ministry. Mark is useful to serve. And, and I, what I find fascinating about this is that in his, his last hours, or last days, Paul wants Mark. The man he didn't want before. Now, I have a couple of times just preached whole sermons about this passage with Mark and Mark and Demas and Mark, Demas and Timothy and all that. But I think it's an important thing that, that reconciliation is an important part of the Christian faith. And uh, that people who do disappoint us and people that do kind of sometimes fail can be redeemed and reconciled and brought back. On the one hand, I think Paul was certainly right back in uh, Acts 15 and 16 on that second journey not to take Mark. It made perfectly good sense. But somewhere along the way, those things got reconciled. And Mark became useful so much that he wants Mark to come with him. So notice the two people, the three people in, Tim, in Paul's life that he wants now. He sent Titus, who's important, away. He has sent Crescens away. He's going to send Tychicus away, Tychicus away to replace Timothy. He's got Luke. He wants Timothy. And he wants Mark. He wants Mark to come. It says a lot about Paul and about Mark and about the ability for relationships to be mended. He says, I have sent uh, Tychicus or Tychicus to Ephesus. And then probably he's taking the letter to Timothy. Then he says this, when you come, bring the overcoat, which I left at, Tro- at Troas with Carpus, and the books, especially the parchments. These are just kind of, these are just little you know, lines, but some believe that Paul probably was arrested at Troas. And uh, that when he was arrested, he left stuff there. And he wants Timothy go by Troas, pick up, pick up his overcoat, which was really a poncho. It's what it was, just a heavy poncho. It's going to be winter. It's gonna, probably by now, if he's, he's going to be in jail in Rome. and in, in prison, there was no, nothing good in there. And it was cold and damp. So bring that. And then he says the books, especially the parchments. Now, there's, there's some interesting discussion about that. Because the books were oftentimes made of papyrus, which was a thin kind of paper, and the parchments were made of leather. And some think what he's saying is, I mean, and, and most think that probably, you know, he had the Old Testament on there, maybe some other things, but he may be saying something like this, go get the books, and by the books, I mean the heavy-duty parchment books and bring those with you. Bring me the good stuff that I need. I mean, it may have been that he wanted to write some things down. It may have been just parchment paper. It may have been, you know, some things that he had, but he wanted that. And, and probability, probably because he was going to settle some things along the way. So he's given some very specific instructions for what he wants done. Notice in verse 14, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. There are several Alexanders mentioned. This one's probably from Ephesus. There's one mentioned. Um, when it says he did him great harm, most likely, most think that it means that, that he, he may have been the one, that, that, that if you're in the Greek, it kind of brings out that the idea is he's the one that, that informed on him, or, or he's the one that um, ratted him out, so to speak. So many think that he's the one that went to the Romans to get him arrested, and that he's, he's the one that did that. And uh, what a great line there. Um, May the Lord repay him according to his deeds. That is not a line of vengeance. Uh, it is a line of God will settle all accounts. 
Now, we certainly can understand if Paul kind of had the idea that after what Alexander did him great harm, that he would have no, um, no problem if um, God struck Alexander dead. But that's probably not really what it meant. It meant something like the Lord will take care of that and handle all of that. And I think one of the lessons that we should take in life from New Testament, we should want people who are antagonistic towards God to one day be held accountable to God, by God. We should want justice. We should want things to be laid square. I I know we live in a culture sometimes where it's popular to say, you know, how can a loving God do this or that? Well, a loving God will always bring about justice. He can't be loving if justice doesn't prevail at some point. Now, he, he may hold off a little bit. Um, in, this, in the fall, I'm going to preach uh, some about um, the, the, the end, the end. Now, not the last days. I'm not going to Revelation and preaching all of the stuff that you may think. I'm just going to preach about Christ coming and God settling all things. But one of the things that I point out constantly is there going to come a time that God will set all things straight. We want him to do that. We want God to be vindicated. I want those who oppose God to know they were wrong. I don't want to see people suffer. I know people who are lost. I don't want them to go to hell. I don't. But I do want them to acknowledge that God is Lord. I do want them to some point acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, which Paul says. And if they don't do it in this life, they'll do it in the next life. And I think there ought to be a sense from all of us of wanting to be sure that all of creation will acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ and the justice of God. They will. And so there is a sense that Paul has, let God take care of him. But we should want, and listen, I look at some people today, and I won't mention any names, but I look at them and I think you are evil as evil can be. You are pure evil. And I look forward to the day God holds you accountable. If, if you refuse to repent, repentance is a form of accountability, by the way. If you repent, you're being held accountable. You're admitting I did wrong and I need forgiveness. So that's a form of accountability. But I look forward to the day that God holds people accountable. Because it needs to happen. They need to know they were wrong and how they treated others and how they treated God. And the same token... I don't ever want to be held accountable for anything that I've done. He says, be on guard against him yourself too, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. He said, Timothy, be care- careful. Sometimes you have to do that. When I, uh, <coughs> excuse me, when I left uh, Bridgeport and uh, my associate Craig, I knew there was a really good chance he would follow me as pastor, and he did. And... Uh, before I left, I just sat down with him. I said, so let me, you, remember, you ever see the scene in The Godfather where, you know, um, where the Godfather looks at Michael and he says, he gives him some advice of what's going to happen when he dies. And, uh, you know, he, all, all the things are going to happen. I, and I, I kind of, and I just sat down with Craig and I said, so here's what you need to be careful of. Here's, what, here's how things are going to happen if you're not careful. These are the people that you have to watch out. And I didn't do it in an ugly way or mean way, but I felt like you need to be on guard. You don't have the experience that I have. You don't have the vantage point that I have. You don't know what I know. 
And I'm going to share some of that with you. And I think there is a part of that in our life. Fathers do it to their children. Mothers do it to their kids. Part of our responsibility to our kids is to say, now they're not going to listen to you. But you tell them so later on you can say, I told you so. And that's the whole purpose of telling your kids those things. And so you can rub it in later with great glee and joy as your parents did to you. But there is an importance of helping people understand how things may go. Verse 16, he says, At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. His first defense probably means this. Not the first time he's in prison at Rome. But in their judicial system, much like ours, there was like an arraignment. There would have been a time he'd have gone before uh, the magistrate and the charges would have been presented. There's a chance there for a defense to be made. You see that in Acts that he kind of does that. Um, he said, no one was there to support me. They deserted me, may it not be counted against them. Probably it means that there was just no one there on his side. And he kind of felt deserted. And uh, he doesn't, he, he's basically saying, I forgive him. You know, well, don't, don't want that to be held against him. <coughs> but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished, and all the Gentiles may hear, and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. This is a fascinating sentence. What he's basically saying is this, at my first defense, what I did was proclaim the gospel. What did I do in my defense? Well, basically what he's doing is, is, and you see some of that in Acts where he says, the reason I'm on trial is because I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why I'm on trial. And so he would begin to explain that. Back then, the Romans, this is during the time of Nero, and I'm going to share something with you just a minute about Nero. But Christians were looked at, some thought they were atheists because they didn't worship the emperor or the pagan gods. Some thought they were cannibals because they talked about eating the flesh and blood of Jesus. And some thought all sorts of kind of odd, strange things about them. So he had an opportunity to share with him truth. Now remember, Paul always wanted to share the world through the gospel. In the book of Acts, Acts 1.8 says, you will be my witnesses to all the world. And Acts ends with Paul at Rome for the first time. But here we see Paul in Rome the second time. And most likely, the person he preached before was the emperor, and here's why. It says, the Gentiles might hear, and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. That lion's mouth is an interesting thing. Some think that, it was, uh, that he was able, that the first time, that they could have just go ahead and found him guilty and you know, done the whole you know, Christians and lions thing. The problem is, Paul's a Roman citizen. That wouldn't have happened. The better understanding is that the lion, the concept of lion is oftentimes uh, a symbolism or a way of speaking of the emperor. And Nero was sometimes referred to as a lion. Um, there's references to all of that. And so most likely, and I think the best explanation, is he stood before at some point the lion, Nero. And he was able to share the gospel. And at that moment he was rescued. He wasn't killed at that moment, though he knows his death is coming. But he was able to share. I mean, think about this just for a moment. Um, Paul, most likely because of who he was, appeared before Nero and had the opportunity to share the gospel for Nero. And, of course, Nero would reject the gospel and went on to kill lots of Christians, Paul and Peter, about the same time. But that's a fascinating thing if you think about it. The, the places the gospel was shared, Jesus before Pilate, you know, Paul, oftentimes in Acts, before leading representatives of, of the cities, they went. Christianity, from the very beginning, reached all aspects of Greco-Roman culture and society. 
I mean, it touched people in every level of life. Every social strata came in contact with Christ. And so he says, I was able to do this. <clears throat> Verse 18. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And what, a, what a great ending. The Lord will rescue me. He's not saying he will rescue him from death. He will rescue him from every evil deed. In other words, all the evil that they do, even though it will take his life, God will deliver him from that. Because he is going to end up in the kingdom. He is going to end up safely in the heavenly kingdom. And there is, I think, in there, the important, one of the important things for us to understand in our Christian life. And, and, and I get this. I do this. I just see life from this perspective. This is all that I know about life is on earth. You know, and you see everything, and you experience everything, and the good and the evil and the bad and, and all of that. And I understand there is something beyond me. And I understand that there is an eternal aspect to life. I haven't experienced it yet. Not really. I know it's popular to say, well, even in this life we experience eternity. Yeah, no, we don't really. Not the way that, that we think about it. And so Paul is basically saying that whatever happens in this life, no matter what happens to us, all the persecution, all the, all the evil, in Christ we're delivered out of that to an eternal kingdom. In other places, Paul has said, you need to be absent from the bodies to be present with the Lord. You know, to live as Christ, to die as gain. He, he's longed forward. He's looked forward to that moment to be with the Lord. Here he's facing death and you know, he's facing the reality of that, and I don't think he's really wanting necessarily to die, but he understands that there is deliverance. And I, and I, I really, Joe and I were talking about this just a few moments ago before we came in, you know, about whatever we were talking about. And at the end of the day, in the day it's like uh, we were talking about people and, uh, you know, and some of the things they get wrong. And it's like, well, you know, as long as they love Jesus, you know, and, and you know, they trust Christ. And he's like, yeah, you know. The bottom line is they get to heaven. You know, I'm like, yeah, that's the bottom line. The bottom line, when all is said and done, is we get to heaven. And, uh, you know, that's really true. And, and I know that, you know, if I was in seminary and said that, I'd get a lot of lectures about how to live the life of a disciple and the worship and all of this, blah, 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 blah. I get all that. I know all that stuff. At the end of the day, I want to know that when you die, you go to heaven. Be with Jesus. All the rest of that stuff's important. That's the most important thing. And I think Paul, to some degree, is saying that. He says, listen, whatever happens, I'm going to go to be with Jesus. And uh, as I get older and I simplify things, that brings me great comfort. For me, for people I love and care about, when all is said and done, yeah, I'm going to go to be with Jesus. And, and I know, you know, I got responsibilities in this life, and I, and I get all that. I mean, I, I, all the stuff people think, I get it all. I, I'm Baptist pastor and all that stuff. I'm just saying the truth of the matter is, this is what Paul is saying. I'm going to die, and I'm going to be rescued out of the evil, and I'm going to be with Jesus. That's pretty good. So, Timothy, you need to come. There's things we need to do. I want you to be here with me. I want to help you, but that's it. And I think one of the things that we've really worked at doing here at, first, at the First Baptist is I think that's basically, at the end of the day, our strategy, our, our way of thinking. It's the way I think. What I really want is to be sure that as many people as possible 
hear about Jesus and trust Jesus. Now, do I want them to go in discipleship? Do I want their theology to be right? Well, yeah, I do. Do I want to get their lifestyle correct and get quit, have them quit living in sinful ways? Well, yeah, I do. I want all of that. But the bottom line for me is that first, I just have to get them to come to Christ. All the other stuff will take care of itself. And I grew up, and I've shared this countless times, I grew up in a world, in a church, and most of you did too, where it was the opposite. Get their life straightened out. Get their theology straightened out, and they'll come to Jesus. And that's wrong. It, you know, I'm not saying we shouldn't help them with their theology and get in their life. I'm not saying that. But they need to come to Jesus. Once you come to Jesus, the other things get straightened out. And that's what we have to understand. I want you to learn right stuff. That's why I teach it right. That's why I am very careful in what I teach. And sometimes I'm rather harsh about things that, this, that I think are wrong in teaching. And I've said some, over the years some really harsh things about certain viewpoints theologically because they're fundamentally wrong. And some of you believe them, and you shouldn't. And that's why I want you to live the life that Christ has called you to live. But after you come to Christ, this is when that's important. Beforehand, I just want you to come to Jesus. And that's kind of what Paul's saying. He's saying, you know, when all is said and done, I'm going to be with him forever and ever. Amen. And that's pretty good. He adds a little bit at the end. Greet Prisca and Aquila in the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth. When I left Trophimus sick at Miletus, make every effort before winter to come. That's, you know, again, um, Eubulus greets you, also Puddins, I don't know how to pronounce that, Puddins just sounds best. Linus, Claudia, and all the brothers and sisters, the Lord be with your spirit. And the last things he writes is grace be with you. Grace of God be with you. And he ends this letter. In the last letter he wrote, this personal letter to Timothy. And when I reflect upon Timothy, 2 Timothy, it's one of my favorite letters. You know, I, book of Hebrews, over the last decade has become one of my favorites. Second Timothy just always has, probably because as a pastor, I've, and when I was a young pastor, you know, you had to do all that. But I think, I think some of the stuff that just comes across so personal um, in Second Timothy just hits home so much, the things he deals with. And I think that's what makes it a beautiful letter. Um, Timothy struggled at times. You know, a lot of the scholars think that, you know, he, you know, he, he, his countenance may have been, he may have been a little timid. He may have not wanted to confront people. And yet Paul gave him what is arguably the hardest task in, in the New Testament. Paul sent him to fix Ephesus. That is an unbelievably difficult. And you, when you read First and Second Timothy in all the problems in Ephesus and he sent Timothy to fix it, it's amazing. And he sent Timothy to get all that straight and fix it. And the confidence that he had in Timothy and the confidence that he had in Titus. But it also just reminds me that Paul's ministry was bigger than Paul. That Paul's ministry involved so many people. And then at the end of the day, you realize it's not even Paul's ministry. It's just the ministry of Christ. All of these people that you read about in the end of 2 Timothy, while connected with Paul, the reality is they were all connected in one unbelievable ministry of sharing the gospel. 2 Timothy is a continuation of the many ways of the book of Acts. It is that understanding of going to all the world. And they went into all the world in all the battles they faced. And here's all these different people involved in it. See, we, we just, we think all the time, I do this, you know, with the, the apostles. But 
Peter and Paul, and, and because I simplify things, you know, it's Peter and Paul, and I forget. There were all these people involved in that, just people barely mentioned who played critical roles. And it reminds me, at our church, all of us are involved in this. All of us play a critical role. Every one of you, as a follower of Jesus, play an unbelievably critical role in what we do. We had Sunday 1,580 people. That was the most that's ever been on a single Sunday at First Baptist. And a lot of them, you know, a lot of people were gone. And, and I told some of you, thank you for being gone because we needed a room. You know, we appreciate your absence. But come back next week. We need you here. And, you know, a lot of it was just everybody that was here comes and all that. But, but when I think about that, and, and I think about all the opportunities we have to touch the lives of so many people, I don't do that. Brian doesn't do it, and Joe doesn't do it, and Mike and Troy and all the staff. We don't do that. Y'all do that. You're the ones that touch their lives. And so I look at 2 Timothy, and I see how it ends, you know, with these names, and I think about all of us are that way. All of us are names written in the book of the life of this church. The life of this church, the, 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 chapters, the chapter that we're writing right now, all of us are a part of it. And every one of you have, has a piece of that. And every one of you needs to do your part. You may think your part isn't important, but it is. Because you're a part of this church. So what you do matters. So do it well. And be sure you do it to serve the Lord and help people come to Christ. And that's the end of 2 Timothy. So it's hard to believe we started 1 Timothy back in September. It seems just like yesterday. And it's flown by. But evidently, it hasn't.